Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Three months ago, the U.S. withdrew from the Iran nuclear deal. Today, a new set of U.S. sanctions go into effect against Iran. More sanctions next on oil will follow in November. With me is George Lopez. He's Professor Emeritus at the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies at University of Notre Dame, and he served on the United Nations Security Council Panel of Experts for North Korean Sanctions. And his article in The Hill is, The Iran Sanctions Are Bound to Fail. And I've talked with George about the effectiveness of sanctions over the years. Nice to talk with you again, George. And with you, Jerome. Thank you. Well, the president of the United States disagrees with you, and he was on Twitter this morning saying that these are the most biting sanctions ever imposed and that anyone doing business with Iran will not be doing business with the United States. Why don't you think the Iran sanctions will work? Well, if work is defined as achieving all the objectives, there's two problems here. One, the dilemma of the sanctions themselves as a tool, and the second is working for this administration is the accomplishment of Secretary Pompeo's 12-point plan that he uh, premiered in the Reagan Library last month. Uh, I, I think that the issue of the sanctions themselves are the punishing dimension that we saw in 2014-15 when you had complete cooperation of the United Nations, the European Union, and China and Russia as part of the P5 plus one that brought Iran to the table. Uh, Those sanctions came off on the inauguration of the Iranian deal at the beginning of 2016. And so, in a sense, this is a full reimposition. The the 90-day mark that you talked about today really goes after uh, relatively low-hanging fruit. Probably the most punishing is the uh, sector of, of the automobile industry, which has had a lot of good European contacts over the last two years to refurbish that industry and, and certainly the airline sector. But the ones that come in early November that uh, really decapitate the petroleum uh, industry in Iran are the most uh, devastating. And so the president literally is correct. Uh, they're the most punishing ones we've had because they're exactly the same as the ones that were in place uh, when the deal uh, was concluded and and were lifted. On the dynamic of can you achieve the results, well, those sanctions did achieve results. They achieved the joint comprehensive plan of action that uh, turned back the attempts by Iran to, to build nuclear weapons. But what the secretary and the administration have decided is that they want to achieve objectives that range from curtailing ballistic missile development to the activities, military and otherwise, of Iran and the region. They want full disclosure of all historical developments of nuclear material. They want uh, no longer any support uh, by by uh, Iran of Syria and of the various groups in the Middle East that they've long supported for terrorism. Now, some of these demands are historic and very important on ballistic missiles and on terrorism, but they could be achieved as part of uh, two or three negotiations building from the successful denuclearization of Iran that the Joint Comprehensive Agreement uh, had given us, but the administration has chosen a different way. 
George, what, what do you I make? Of, what do you what do you make of the president? He's he's out there talking about uh, sitting down and meeting with Iran anytime that uh, they they want to. He's open to having a, a new chat, and people think, well, he they, he'd give Iran the North Korea deal, where you you just sit down, talk with the president, and you know you don't have to go through a lot of details. It becomes the the Donald Trump nuclear deal, and then it's a lot better. Well, on the, on the face of it, I can see that as appealing from the American side. It's not appealing from the Iranian side for a number of reasons. The first is that the deal that he's abrogated and pulled the United States out of was a deal that involved multiple partners. The uh, P5 plus one, the European allies, of course, China, Russia, and the United Nations. And so that unilateral withdrawal and offering a unilateral meeting doesn't necessarily solve the dilemma of the uh, full pattern of allies continuing to implement the program. Secondly, if you look at what's happened with the uh, North Korean dimension, that was a historic uh, attempt of a president who has never talked with the leader to create kind of a, a, a nice picture in American history and begin a process which, if you're looking from Iran or other people's point of view, hasn't really led anywhere. And the Iranians are not naive about the public relations dimension of this for the president, but are unclear what would be important for them, especially in the face of the 12-point demands. So I think they saw it as hollow. Uh, they saw the real commitment of the administration and the abrogation of the deal, and it need to be a much more structured, determined, and agenda-focused uh, overture to the Iranians before they'd sit down diplomatically with us. I'm talking with George Lopez. His article in The Hill is The Iran Sanctions Are Bound to Fail. Coming up in a few minutes, we'll discuss whether U.S. universities should use China's college entrance exam when admitting students from China. George, um, you know, we've got ourselves into a situation here where the U.S. has already hurt the Iranian economy. And uh, the, 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 the Iranian currency has fallen against the dollar dramatically. There's people uh, having protests in the street. Uh, the, the United States uh, seems to think that, um, you know, we're going almost for a regime change kind of situation or not. Uh, whatever happens now is going to be okay with the U.S. Either Iran is, is punished and is hurting and looks bad or... Uh, or they get a, a regime change and that'd be great, or they get talks and that'd be great. The, the U.S. Is, is happy right now with where things are at. I think that's true. I also think that's short-sighted for a number of reasons. Um, soon after Pompeo's statement of the 12 points on various news shows, particularly Secretary Bolton and others, uh, or Mr. Bolton and others, were willing to say, yes, at the end of the day, it's more than modifying Iranian behavior. It's really changing the whole nature of the regime. Yesterday, in the official State Department uh, announcement of the sanctions, they backed away from that and only talked about modifying Iranian behavior. What's disappointing to a number of us in this is, uh, first of all, the data matters. If you look at the currency markets this morning, the real is up almost 20%. The Rial has various ways through Iranian policy and actions taken by the European to actually stabilize, and the, the downturn we've seen over the last weeks is in anticipation of what was going to happen. Now that it's happened, it's bounced back up. We even see these kinds of trends in our own stock market. There's no discussion in the American press of the worst deal in history and what's lost by this reimposition of sanctions. 
I think many of us who spent time monitoring international this regime or, or others like I did with North Korea on the development of weapon systems and, and nuclear proliferation are concerned that the companies in Europe especially that have done an excellent job of working with the Iranians on destroying the core of the Iraq reactor, which was the uh, the, the Iraq the, the Iraq reactor is the one that produced plutonium, and a really interesting scientific experiment with the photo reactor, in which they've changed from the production of uranium to the ability to design relatively benign materials, even produce zinc there. If you're a European company who's dealing with the Iranians in this, you do it through the Atomic Energy Organization of Iran. That's the big organization that goes on the list in November 5th. And and so the secondary punishing sanctions against Europeans is the most, I would say, misguided dimension of trying to engage Iran via sanctions or other diplomatic work. Well, what do the European countries and companies do about this? The uh, European Union uh, instituted something they thought would protect some of their companies, but a lot of the big ones like Airbus are, are going to you know, go along with the U.S. sanctions. They can't risk uh, you know, not doing business in the U.S., so they're, they're kind of stuck. Yeah, they are, um, particularly this round of sanctions hurts uh, what I would see the, the investments by Peugeot and, and Renault to help the recovery of the Iranian auto industries. And you're exactly right, choosing between a $100 million contract with U.S. manufacturers and, and business in the U.S. versus $10 million in Iran is an economic decision, not a political one. And most of those companies are making that, even though the European blocking statute has pledged ways to protect those companies from more sanctions and protect them from uh, too many financial losses. I don't think the European group is going to be able to do that. What, what the real dynamic is that costs Europe's economy and costs ours is in this kind of non-universal sanction that we've adopted, it opens the way for new markets and new cooperators with Iran's economy. So China, Russia, and India have said, look, the only sanctions that we usually abide by are United Nations sanctions, so we don't feel under the gun with these. If the United States takes action, the United States takes action. But we are very happy, says China, to buy the reserves that Iran can't sell for oil on the international market. Well, there's nothing more that undercuts the possibility of the economic bite of sanctions that, in fact, you're not able to actually embargo a product that's a major income-producing product. It's also important to see that some major European firms like Total in in, uh, France has been able historically to use their subsidiaries in places like China to run the finances through when they're engaged in trade with regimes that are under embargoes by the United States. So the reason I I make the case that these sanctions will not achieve their objectives is in part because the strong, most punishing ones before 2016 were an international embargo. This is an embargo in action by the United States that has lots of leakage to it right at the start. And that's a formula for lack of success on the economic realm, which therefore means you don't get the compliance on the political realm. 
How do you see this whole story ending with Iran right now? Do the sanctions just sit there in, in, in perpetuity while people dodge them? Is that our new reality? I think it's going to be more complex than that. You mentioned before that uh, the United States was willing to just take what's ever happening. I think what this administration has failed to do is to map out the potential unintended consequences of the actions. So I mentioned before the unintended consequences of actually turning back the successes we've had with denuclearization at some of the major reactor plants in, in, in Iran. The second uh, unanticipated is the bolstering this gives to the Russians for evading the sanctions that the United States has already placed on them. The third is, is that it's unfolding in the context of an emerging trade war with both Europe and with China. And we've never had a situation where sanctions have been able to be successful while they're also accompanied by punishing tariff policies, certainly with allies. And so the chaos that this can wreck on the international scene for trade, I think, is really uh, unappreciated, both by the, uh, by the administration, but particularly by Congress, which hasn't looked into this. On the Iranian side, I think the administration has miscalculated the costs of chaos if that's what results. And it certainly has miscalculated the potential that rather than reformists and democracy coming to Iran, that actually you might really reinforce the position of the most hardline theocrats that bring you back to 1979. And the inability to chart out those possibilities and think about what you really desire is distinctive about the approach of this administration, and it ought not give us very much solace. George Lopez is Professor Emeritus at the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies at Notre Dame. His article in The Hill is The Iran Sanctions Are Bound to Fail. Good talking with you, George. Thank you, Jerome. Coming up after the break, universities want to make it easier for Chinese students to study here. The U.S. government wants to make it harder. We'll catch up on the political challenges facing Chinese students in the U.S. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Dozens of universities in Europe, Australia, and Canada accept results from China's national assessment exam, the Gaokao. The University of New Hampshire became the first U.S. school to accept, accept the Gaokao. The move by New Hampshire to make it easier for Chinese students to come to the U.S. comes at the same time the U.S. federal government is cracking down on Chinese student visas. With me is Natalie Young. She's a Ph.D. candidate in sociology at the University of Pennsylvania. She studies social stratification in China. Thanks for joining me, Natalie. Happy to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about the Gaokao? I don't think most people in the U.S. know a lot about it, but it seems like the entrance exam of all entrance exams. Yeah, uh, it's 
It's pretty grueling. Um, essentially, the Gaokao is a an exam that high school students in China will take at the end of. The, their career, their high school career, uh, they take it in the summer after uh, the twelfth grade, and it's a nine-hour exam split over two days uh, that involves a number of multiple-choice questions, short answer questions, as well as an extended essay, and it essentially is then used to. Uh, in the admissions process for universities in China, so students' scores on this exam will determine whether or not they can go to university in China, and it also will determine which universities they would be able to attend. And so it, it's sorry, it, go is ahead. Is it considered fair, like a fair assessment of students in China? Because it sounds like it's had a lot of criticism. It's got a lot of memorization to it, but does it seem like? And you're a specialist in social stratification in China. Is this <laughs> One of the things that is that seems fair to students and gets good students in uh, good universities. Yeah, that's a tricky question. It's definitely a, the subject of much debate, both within China and among sociologists. So the exam, in when you think about it, generally the idea is fairly. Uh, meritocratic. The idea essentially is everybody comes to the table and they all take this exam, and that exam score will determine where you can go to school. And so, when you compare it to other admission systems and other societies, including in the United States, in many ways, it's kind of taking out some of the subtle social class cues that play into the admissions process. So in the United States, we generally submit not only our SAT score or ACT score, but you'll also submit teacher recommendations, a resume listing your various activities. There'll often be an interview component,、um, and there will also be special preference given for legacies, for example, or student athletes. And all of those various components can be influenced by social class. Your teachers might write more glowing recommendations for you if you behave in the classroom in certain ways that. Uh, Middle-class parents will raise their children to behave. So, in that regard, this kind of exam-only entrance、uh, system is fairly meritocratic. But of course, in reality, students aren't coming to this exam with equal opportunities for success on it. Right? Students from less developed areas of China are going to generally be attending schools with fewer resources, less funding, and certain schools are going to be more successful at preparing students for the exam. This is actually a new line of research that I'm looking into. What kind of programs do schools have to make their students、uh, have a better a leg up essentially on this exam than others?、Uh, there's also a lot that families can do to help their kids prepare for the exam outside of formal education. They can put them in tutoring centers.、Uh, Test prep、uh, programs, which is a growing market in China, and the other thing is there is an aspect of the exam that is in many ways very unfair, which is that students from particular from the city in which the university to which they're applying,、uh, those students will get special preference、um, when they're applying. Essentially, what happens is the score that they need to get into that university, for example, Beijing University, the score Beijing students need to get into Beijing University will be lower than the. 
the score that students outside of Beijing need to get into the university. Very interesting. I'm talking with Natalie Young. She's a PhD candidate in sociology at the University of Pennsylvania. She studies social stratification in China, and we're talking about the Gaokao, the entrance exam that all Chinese students take. Uh, they're thinking about uh, using it to admit students in this country at the University of New Hampshire. They are the first to do it in the U.S. Other uh, places in Europe and Australia and Canada already do. And also with us is Wen Huang, a veteran of the Gaokao exam. He is a journalist and writer, author of The Little Red Guard, amongst other books. Thanks for joining us again, Wen. Nice to see you. Thank you, Jerome. What was your experience with the Gaokao? I took the Gaokao way in the 1980s. <laughs> that was the fifth year after China resumed the Gaokao system. And it's an ancient system, technically. Yes, and then during the Cultural Revolution, Mao abolished the, the Gaokao system and it literally abolished, abolished the university system. In 1977, they started the, the resumed the Gaokao system again. Now, I took it in 1982. Like Natalie said, it was the most grueling process. And we spent that last two years of our high school cramming for the exams. And I've, we've done so many practice uh, exams. Our teachers, uh, their, their bonuses depended on that. The status of the elite high school that I attended depended on that. And our, my parents, they put so much pressure on me that uh, each day in school, my teacher would be saying that uh, you will have to do very well. Our school depends on you, the top students. My dad would say, if you, this is the make and break exam, if you lose the exam, you will have to be a garbage collector or something like that. So I was so nervous that uh, three days before the exam and I couldn't sleep. I, uh, on the day of the exam, and when I went there, I realized the first one was over. I realized it was not as difficult as I had imagined. And in the afternoon, I collapsed and I passed out. And I took some meds and I took too much. I started to throw up, but I managed to finish that. And in the end, and I managed to came out in my category, the first place in the province and then the fifth in the humanities section. And it was like winning the Olympic. Everybody, my parents got so much honor out of it. So you got ill in the middle of the exam and still did the best? There was the one test, like geography. I remember that uh, I was, it was so hot. Every year, July 7th, 8th, and 9th, <laughs> it was so hot. And then I didn't sleep for three days. And then and I just couldn't stand it. And later on, my teacher made up a story, exaggerated my condition to to encourage other students to emulate me. They said, he passed out. They, uh, the doctors <laughs> put him on the stretcher, put him on the stretcher and took him to the, the ambulance. And then he woke up. He said, I want to go back to the exam. And he <laughs> succeeded in getting number one. You know, they exaggerated so much, made me like a hero, which is not a true story, but I, was, I did pass out. I woke up and I threw up and I went back. And then I got over 90 in all the subjects, but I got 76 on that geography, but I still managed to get the top one. It was such a, oh, I still have nightmares now, like uh, a month ago. I woke uh, up that I went really? to the wrong classroom, <laughs> and I didn't know the a answers. Now, now did, did this test prepare you for coming to Western schools, schools in, in the U.S.? And I think you studied in, in England. Right. The whole thing is the exam during that time, it was purely, uh, um, how do I say, it's like preparing for a game show. 
a lot of the memorization. For example, I can I can still memorize. Uh, Dates a- April nineteenth, seventeen seventy five, the Battle of Lexington and Concord. Or 1642, British Civil War, 1688, the British Glory Revolution. But nothing prepared you for, like, independent studies. I remember in 1984, I went to uh, study in the U.K., and then the tutorial, I was furiously taking notes because all I needed in China was to memorize the teacher's notes. And then after the class, the teacher said, you need to write an essay on Macbeth. I was so panicked. I couldn't do it. I got a B minus. That was the, my dad felt so ashamed of me because that was the lowest score I ever got. It took me a long time, you know, the whole study system. But I heard that uh, the the education system that my niece just took is reformed a lot, it changed a lot. So might be some merits in using that standard test, but certainly in my area, it wasn't. Uh, Natalie, let's swing back to you. Uh, do do you think this exam would accurately depict how you know well students would do in the U.S. if they were to come to the U.S. and, and the U.S. were to accept this exam more widely? You know, this is an issue that education scholars have been talking about in regards to pretty much any kind of standardized exam. Um, this is, you know, we have the same questions about the SAT and whether it's able to. Uh, first of all, prepare students for, you know, university life, but also is it a good measure of later academic success? Um, And for some students, these kinds of exams can be pretty good measures, but for a lot of students, it won't necessarily, that won't necessarily be the case. Um, And the thing with something like the Gaokao, you get you can technically take the Gaokao more than once, but for most students, you're going to basically have one shot. Right. Uh, so whether or not that's really representative of your potential is, of course, a tricky question. It is worth pointing out that um, that China generally performs quite well on international exams, such as um, the program for uh, PISA, uh, the program for international, um, gosh, I'm forgetting the exact wording of the acronym at the moment. Uh, but generally, China does perform quite well in math and science, and um, critical thinking skills among Chinese high school students are generally uh, quite higher than sometimes, I think, uh, we get the impression that, you know, these the, the system in China is just route mo- uh, memorization and nothing else happening. Um, so I do think the Gaokao can to an ex- can measure things better than sometimes we give it credit for. But I think with any standardized exam, you always get these questions about, you know, is this really measuring students' potential? Now, it seems like one of the things that ruffles uh, people's feathers about accepting the Gaokao exam in the U.S. is the political aspect. And the, uh, I understand there's essays about Xi Jinping now in it. Uh, when does uh, do you have to write a kind of political thing uh, at some point now? There's one subject. It's called political education, and then you have to memorize all the the tenets of Marxism and stuff. And then in the Chinese literature part, there's an essay. It tend to be more political. For example, this year, all the most of the provinces they have different uh, tests for each different province, but they're all based on the Xi Jinping thought and then some questions regarding patriotism. Or in my area was the, the patriotism, and now there's uh, the 
different uh, Xi Jinping thoughts and or more political, and a lot of people, scholars, they opposed to that. But uh, it is. But like Natalie said, that it can be just like any standard test. You have the pros and cons. Now I talked to somebody who was in charge of uh, the Gaokao. Uh, last night, and he told me that uh, since my time, the the system has changed so much, and the 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 questions, even though they're the most challenging part, they're more and more tailored towards some um, independent analysis and thinking. But it's still, it's like a standard test. That's the only thing that measures your 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 success. Uh, Natalie, should it rub people the wrong way that you've kind of got to do a political uh, trot in in this thing? Yeah, so this is, uh, on the one hand, there have been some very recent developments in the um, the patriotic elements to the Gaokao. Um, there has there there have been a lot of people commenting on the fact that these uh, recent essay questions where you need to talk about Xi Jinping thought uh, are kind of uh, harkening back to uh, an era of uh, the Maoist era when a lot of the Gaokao, before it was abolished during the Cultural Revolution, a lot of the Gaokao did have more patriotic elements to it. Um, there is, that being said, this is also part of kind of a, a longer, uh, well, still fairly recent, but something that's been present in education in China uh, for a longer period of time, which is there is a commitment among uh, those who are designing curriculum to be including patriotic education. And I mean, that is essentially something that every country does um, from the beginning of public education. Uh, schools have been trying to uh, cultivate students in, and to a sense of being a member of their own country and having a strong sense of uh, citizenship and loyalty to the nation state. Um, but this has taken a little bit more of a, um, I wouldn't say dramatic twist in China, but I would say that there's been more effort um, on the part of the party state in the past uh, couple of decades to uh, cultivate patri- uh, patriotism in this in the student body. Um, and that's kind of linked to the recent changes that have been going on in China as Deng Xiaoping introduced economic reforms in 1978, and we've seen China becoming more marketized. There's been a little bit less of a commitment of the general public to you know these more socialist principles in Mao Zedong thought than was the case previously. And so with with this kind of widespread disillusionment um, with the with uh, Marxist principles, the Chinese party state has kind of needed to create a new sense of legitimacy for itself and also to maintain uh, this kind of sense of nationalism, which is kind of important to maintaining uh, China as it is today politically. So uh, there has been an effort to... Uh, to educate students in, in, in patriotic education more so than, uh, you know, in the early 1980s, for example. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ, and I'm speaking with Natalie Young. She studies social stratification in China at the University of Pennsylvania and writer Wen Huang, and we're talking about the Gaokao exam, China's entrance exam, and it's being uh, accepted now in the U.S. by the University of New Hampshire and probably other places, places in Europe, Australia, and Canada already accept it. I wanted to ask a couple questions about, you know, it's ironic that... Um, 
you know, the University of New Hampshire is trying to open up access to another a new pool of Chinese students here by accepting the Gaokao. And at the same time, the U.S. is uh, has started restricting visas for Chinese students and making it in some cases kind of random, it sounds like, in, in their acceptance standards uh, based on the kind of pl- thing they want to study now. The FBI director came out and said that Chinese university students are a, a threat to national security, and the graduate students can only apply for one-year visas now. Um, when, what do you think is is going on here? Did, did Chinese students get it caught up in our trade war? I think so. It also, uh, I think we need to make it clear that uh, the visa restrictions that the Trump administration has just introduced that apply only to grad students who are studying science like uh, robotics, uh, aviation, uh, engineering, you know, uh, mathematics, and these are the um, the areas that uh, students face restrictions, like one year visa. But the undergraduate students, which the majority of them are, and they are not affected by this visa change. And I think this is um, we have to see it from both sides. And the, recently, there has been a lot of incidents where uh, some Chinese scholars or researchers here they. They are caught stealing secrets, trade secrets, like uh, they just uh, read somebody who worked for GE. He uh, stole some technology-related, like turbine-related technology. And in Illinois, somebody went to steal some seeds from these researchers and scholars. So this happens. But right now, with the heightened sense of the trade war and stuff, stuff like that, and this issue is becoming more prominent, but when we, uh, I talked with some students, they said that they have not been affected so far, but it is making it difficult for them. But after all, a lot of students, they come to the U.S. because we have the best universities here. But on the other hand, it's making it harder for them. But also, I think when we look at the issue, we need to um, take into account the fact that uh, the Chinese students there, because they're tech geniuses, they are, they have made tremendous contributions to this country, the whole, in the whole high tech area, uh, biomedicine, and a lot of the medicine. And if we stop doing that, if we are becoming more restrictive, it will, it will have some impact on it. You know, historically, there's that story about Chen Xuesen, Natalie probably uh, know about that, in the 19, in 1955, he was uh, he graduated from MIT and worked for Caltech. And in 1955, the Red Scare, and then he was detained. And then the U.S. later swallowed him. Uh, and then he went back to China. He contributed to China's space and mi- missile programs. He was instrumental in China's development of the atomic bomb. So it is that there are a lot of uh, very great talents here. If we keep doing this Red Scare or exaggerate these uh, these uh, um, terror-related things about China's uh, spying activities, we are going to lose some talents. Um, Natalie, are you optimistic about what is happening with Chinese students with uh, this this track that by the University of New Hampshire, they're they're trying to get into this pool of students that and get them not to uh, have to take the, the the U.S. entrance exams, which is another layer of of pain for them. Uh, at the same time, it, we've got all this politics. What do you think is happening? 
Yeah. Um, I mean, I think this, this new policy does make sense in that, you know, students are preparing for the Gaokao for pretty much all of high school. And then to ask them to uh, then take the SAT, it just kind of seems redundant in some ways. Um, it also means that students have to essentially do an extra year of preparation to come to U.S. universities. And one is absolutely right. There is a lot that Chinese students have, contribute to, have to contribute to the United States. Natalie Young is a Ph.D. candidate in sociology at the University of Pennsylvania. She studies social stratification. And Wen Huang is a journalist and author of The Little Red Guard and A Death in the Lucky Holiday Hotel. Thank you both for joining us and talking about the Gaokao exam and a little bit about the visa requirements in the U.S. Nice to hear you. See you both. My pleasure here. Yes, thank you very much for having us. Coming up after the break, we'll find out about a new tool to bring the stories of marginalized people to life in the university classroom. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. There's a new tool to bring the stories of marginalized people to university classrooms. Dacademia brings more than 1,500 documentaries from over 100 countries around the world to university classrooms, complete with uh, people to talk to about it and, uh, and curriculum to use. Dr. Nassim Abdi is here. She's a co-founder of Dacademia, along with Babek Shah Mansouri, uh, a co-founder as well. He's on the line with us. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Um, Nassim, could you tell us a little about yourself and how your um, life story kind of funnels into this project? Sure, sure. Um, so I'm originally from Iran. I came to U.S. in 2003 as a grad student with a passion for education. I do believe still that education is the most powerful weapon to change the world. I'm hoping that still it's... Um, relevant. <laughs> and um, so I came for grad school in education. And um, long story short, I finally got my degree in international education policy and um, focused on women's studies. And um, I started teaching in a classroom on a topic that I'm very passionate about, because um, it's a, I have personal connection with it. And I do want to bring awareness um, about it, which is the impact of war on people. We hear a lot about wars. It's sort of now is a buzzword that you don't really react to it anymore. But I grew up during a brutal war between Iran and Iraq. So my childhood um, in the south side of Iran was during a war. And then I grew up um, and um, had, a, had a loved one, had a fiancé that I lost because of the chemical bombs that were used in this war, and I lost him. And Iraq used a lot of chemical weapons on mm. uh, waves of Iranians that uh, were, were kind of being thrown at the front lines. Correct, yes. And uh, unfortunately, many people, a few years after the war, we started seeing the result of those chemical bombs because they haven't been even checked by the countries that provided those chemical bombs for Iraq. So they didn't know what is the impact um, 
um, and we started losing many people because of the impact of those chemical pumps from leukemia and leukemia. things of that nature. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how do you bring that feeling about? Um, war and uh, the results of war, uh, you were trying to put that in classroom context. Yeah, so I was. I had a perfect session in my transnational feminism class. It was about the impact of war on women and children. And I thought, this is a perfect setting to educate my students about something that changed my life for the rest of my life and changed many people's life every day in Syria and everywhere that we uh, hear in the news. It's real. It's some, something really human that, like, people are dying and impact, it impacts their lives. So I started sharing personal stories. Exactly this is a story that I shared with you right now. And unfortunately, I failed to connect with my students. And I was shocked and honestly annoyed, almost in tears, went back home. Now I have, an, I have a wonderful husband who is very supportive. I told him he's a faculty member as well. I told him, you know, Ali. I don't think teaching is for me. And he's like, honey, we need, we need to find another way. <laughs> this, is, this is needs to continue. And I started really thinking about why they didn't connect with my personal story, why they were not even, they were checking text messages and um, emails probably. And I got a few looks and a few comments, but that was it. It was not that... Um, transformative learning experience that I was imagining is going to happen, the discussion that I was imagining going to happen. So the next session, I decided to try something. I also happened to be the leading actress of a film that became successful because of a brilliant director of the film, Secret Ballad by Sony Pictures. Bob Payami, the director, was, is an amazing human being. Um, and it went to Venice Film Festival and toured in the US and Europe, was on Netflix for a while. So that gave me a chance after coming to U.S. to be in many screenings and live Q&A sessions with, uh-huh. the film, with the audience, right. which was the human connection that I needed in 2003 after the Iraq War as a Middle Eastern woman. It helped me a lot to make lots of amazing friends because there was no bias there. They asked me brilliant questions, and we got engaged in many conversations that um, helped both, of, both sides to learn. And I thought, well, if I bring that in classroom, maybe that changed something. And I was lucky that a friend of mine who is a social documentary filmmaker in New York City, Sarah Kaki, she made her first short documentary about concept of war, um, Facing the Mirror. And it's a very uh, well-made film, amazing story about this plastic surgeon who dedicated his life on victims of war. He... This film is about this six-year-old Iraqi boy whose head got disfigured because of the car explosion. And film starts with this moment that he goes to the mirror, he looks at himself, he doesn't recognize himself, he starts crying. So that was a perfect way of explaining what war can do to you. Um, and I thought, this is, this is what I need. I told Sarah, do you mind if I share your film in my classroom? She said, absolutely not. That's perfect. That's what I loved and dreamed about my film to happen for it. And I said, would you come and video um, chat on Skype to talk with my students? That was it. It changed everything after that. <laughs> I'm talking with Dr. Nassim Abdi. She's a co-founder of Dacademia. Also with us is Babak Shah Mansouri, another co-founder of Dacademia. Um, can you put some meat on the bones of the project, Babak, and explain what it is and, and what, what you do now? 
Dacademia is a social enterprise. Uh, actually, it uses independent documentaries to bring uh, social justice discussions in classrooms. Uh, we provide universities and colleges uh, with short documentary films and live video chat with filmmaker activists from all around the world. And you've got over 1,500 films available? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, actually, we have uh, about uh, 2,000 uh, right now. Okay. We have about 2,000 films. And uh, what we do for uh, filmmakers uh, is, you know, helping them as an uh, impact producer uh, to uh, to help them to uh, get to the academic uh, ecosystem uh, and, uh, you know, also uh, get new audiences, create direction engagement with them, and also uh, provide the filmmaker uh, with a reliable uh, revenue stream. And the reason that we decided to do this, because as Nassim said, uh, both of us are immigrants and coming from uh, marginalized groups. Uh, just as an example, I cannot attend our August 9th ceremony just because of the travel ban. And, you know, I should be in Toronto and everything oh. is happening there <laughs> in Chicago. Yeah, because of uh, all these personal experiences, we decided to make this platform to help, uh, you know, marginalized communities voices to be heard yeah uh, give us some idea about the kind of things that have happened and the kind of people you've brought to classrooms sure. um, Nassim absolutely um, so um, let me start with something local we have a film it's called they don't give a damn it's about politics and policies on public housing in Chicago Southside Chicago uh, it's a brilliant film um, by a, f a producer who also lived in um, public housing herself and got her PhD and decided to do her dissertation on that. And um, so we had a session with Purdue Northwest, um, where some of the students were from that region, and some of them even lived in public housing. So they watched the film, and then we had the Q&A session. Um, and she came um, on video chat, and they talked about all the details that they needed to talk about and all the information that they needed to exchange and all the activism projects that they, they thought it could happen. And the faculty member was like the facilitator of this conversation. Or another situation, we have a film about uh, surviving after sexual assault. And um, so the film, the author of the film was someone who survived the situation. And uh, we brought the film to so now we are going beyond just global and international issues. It could be just locally or something here in um, any community that could happen. And the, f uh, the author of the film, um, Lorraine, uh, was the person who had this experience. And uh, we offered the film in SAIC, School of Art Institute of Chicago, uh, art therapy class. And um, the students had a chance to talk directly with Lorraine and um, learn about how art could help with um, surviving after such a trauma and um, how her life has changed um, by getting engaged in writing. And now she's a well-published author and poet. And they could talk directly with her. Um, yeah. I'm talking with Nassine Abdi and Babek Shah Mansouri, co-founders of Dacademia, 
Um, explain, Bobek. I was amazed by, by the website. You've got a lot to offer there. And if people want to just start doing this, if educators want to start doing this, they can go to the website and just really get started and nose around and see what they want. Uh, yeah. Uh, just imagine you are an educator and you would like to design a session for your class. Uh, you can submit your syllabus to tell us about the content of your class, uh, you know, uh, your interest, uh, and the topic you are going to cover. Uh, the academia then, you know, suggests you a short list of documentaries uh, that match to your topic, and also uh, we are giving you a set of tailored curricula for each documentary. And the most interesting part uh, you is that you know uh, you could invite a filmmaker activist uh, through a video conference to your classroom, regardless of their geographical uh, location. Uh, right now, we have educational packages and you know documentaries for the fields of uh, mental health, uh, gender and sexualities, uh, women's studies, early childhood education, social justice education, public health. Uh, Middle Eastern studies and, and a lot more uh, and um, you know so far we have worked with uh, nine different universities uh, inside the US and uh, in other countries like you know University of Toronto and uh, as Nassim said uh, you know uh, an example about SAIC what we are doing in the classroom uh, is uh, um, you know watching the documentary uh, talking about that having a dialogue about that and after that you know uh, having a dialogue with the filmmakers or objects of the film I imagine a lot of the filmmakers are really happy to do this. Uh, I mean, I feel so sorry for some documentary <laughs> filmmakers who spend so much time on a project of their passion, and then um, they, they, you know, it seems like it, it shows somewhere, and then they don't ever get to engage about it again, and they've got to move on to their next project, uh, whereas here they can just continually engage interested people. That, that seems like I'm sure they're happy to participate. Absolutely, yeah. Um, um, I think that was why we got in our even first contest that we had, short documentary contest that we announced what the model is and how we work with the filmmakers to bring their voices to uh, academic se uh, setting in classrooms. We got 529 short documentaries from 88 countries. And the second contest, which um, was last year, the theme was women's rights to public spaces. Uh, we got 1,018 short documentaries wow. from 112 countries around the world. And we are very excited and um, uh, happy to announce that our award ceremony is going to be on this Thursday, August 9th. Oh, that's terrific. And, and um, the documentarians uh, come from so many different countries. I imagine you get some great films that uh, are, are giving people a perspective they just are not getting in viewing a, you know, even the most fine streaming service. <laughs> exactly. Um, honestly, we go with low-budget films because we know they don't have access to many other platforms around the board. Our submission for the film contests are free for filmmakers because we understand as people who immigrated from Iran, we understand when you don't have access to the global market, you can't use those credit cards to <laughs> submit anything. You don't have access. So... Um, one thing that we are really proud of, our first documentary, the winner of our first contest, uh, was a documentary about the Yazidi community. Oh. Um, and it was even before New Yorker started talking about that issue. So. 
So, yeah. Well, congratulations on Dacademia. It sounds like a great project. Dr. Nassim Abdi is a co-founder, as is Babek Shah Mansouri, who joined us um, on the line. Thank you very much for joining us. And if people want more information, they just go to dacademia.com. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you for having us. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk about the global heat wave and climate change. Hope you can join us. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.